Welcome back to Cinema Snorkel, Casey. Here we are, Carlin, once again in our parents' basement, recording on an iPhone. The second time. It's kind of fun. It's super fun. Face to face. Yeah, we get all, we get chemistry that you Sim- never get. Sibling a- chemistry. <laughs> ah, stop poking me. Stop poking me. Kick, <laughs> kick him in my room. Is that oh, the sibling chemistry you're talking about? The sacred. The, all the annoying things. You sprayed me with a wet rag the other day. I want you yeah, to remember that. Well, you deserved it. <laughs> you threw, you've been insulting you me a minute threw a, before. You threw a wet rag on me. <laughs> I just want, when you say sibling chemistry, I just want you to know if that's what I'm thinking of. Um, There was the sacred boundary of can't come in my room. Yeah. And remarkably, we obeyed that. Yeah, how did that? We, well, because we had a higher power enforcing strict order. That's right. Mom would have lowered the boom. <laughs> had anyone... I don't know why. <laughs> if we, it was like, Mom, Carlin won't stay out of my room. It'd be like, Carlin, you need to let him have his space. That's kind of cool, though. You know, she was a respecter of persons. We had some sacred boundaries that could not be yeah. crossed. <laughs> it's called rule of law. You heard? <laughs> but out in the family room and in the kitchen, it's the law of the jungle. <laughs> Anything could happen. Oh, well, it was a little bit like um, the Hunger Games. Wouldn't oh, you say? <laughs> a battle of all against all. Nature, red and tooth. <laughs> Casey, I'm so excited to talk about the movie we saw last night. True dat. Called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Hunger Games? <laughs> Reloading. Point, point 0.5. Hunger Games 2. <laughs> the Ballad of... <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's just called The Hunger Games. Ballad the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We saw this movie with a handful of our dear friends and family, and we interviewed them to get their fresh, hot-off-the-grill takes and are going to intersperse them in different points. So you might hear some of our dear friends and family. What does my mentor do besides bring me roses? I do my best to take care of you. What happens in there? Fueled with the terror of becoming prey. See how quickly we become predator? See how quickly civilization disappears? There's a natural goodness built into us all. We can step across that line into evil. Or not. You hear that, boy? It's the sound of snow. Falling. I think the key line was everyone does what they can to survive or something along those lines. And so even Lucy Gray, she even does what she can to survive. And thus, no one is good. Everyone is good until they have to survive. One thing that I really noticed throughout it is there's the idea that man is born like evil, which is what like the head game master believes. She's like, no, everyone's evil. Mm. And so what we're doing is we're playing with them. We're trying to Mm. control them to keep them from being as evil as they are because if we let them be, they'd be even more evil than we are, right? Which is actually where, like, snow ends at the end. Whereas, like, there's other people that are like, no, people are good Mm. and they have to be pushed into evil. I couldn't stop looking at the main character's hair. It just seemed like a motif (laughs) throughout, you know, the waviness. That's surprising, yeah. The changes were as as dynamic as his haircuts throughout. Almost like the hair went on its own character arc. It's it's definitely a metaphor. (laughs) Do you love The Hunger Games as much as I do? I read the first book in one day. Yeah. Then I read the second book in like two days. 
And then I read the third book in a very short amount of time, I can't remember. I think when I first read them, I thought, this is like a cool teen fiction, young adult thing, but it's had staying power in my imagination. Really? And I still, like, when I go back and watch the movies and read the, well, I guess I've only read the books once, but when I go back, I, it hits me every time. What about The Hunger Games hits you every time? I love the plot structure and the way the it's like political chess. I don't know. I just get, I get wrapped up in it every time. And also the feeling of being dropped into an arena yeah. to fight to the death yeah. is just so scary. It's scary. It's a gripping, uh, like plot device that. And when I first read this, I was like 17. And if you add the like romance, like, Oh man, what if you were dropped into an arena with someone you really like? Is that the part that really got you excited when you were like no. reading these? You wanted to, were you team PETA or team Gail? PETA. But I did, not that I cared. <laughs> <laughs> Teen fiction is all like that. It's like, ooh, the romantic tension. Yeah. And like, I would never have the audacity to say I like this girl in real life. But if we were thrown into arena fighting yeah. for the death, you know, all bets are off, man. I'm confessing my love. You were the same age as the characters while you were reading it. Oh, absolutely. Maybe a little bit older. But um, yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. It's young adult fiction for a reason. But it gets older and older. <laughs> like the themes get more and more adult in the sense that by the end of Catching Fire, we're talking about inciting revolution. And then there is a revolution. And I think, I mean, I don't know a lot about history like you do, but I would say that it's a pretty believable revolution. It's a pretty believable historical moment for Pan Am. But what this movie does, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I feel contextualizes the the whole trilogy and grounds it in even more history and more reality. And I think it, it was actually needed to do that because it it takes the the glam of the Hunger Games that we kind of grew up with. Uh-huh. It's a little glamorous and it's like, ooh, a little soapy uh-huh. um, in ways that make it fun for a, a teen. Uh-huh. But what this movie is kind of grounds it and gives it some more mm. uh, gritty, gritty, which is appropriate when you're talking about children fighting to death in an arena. I think it was kind of necessary even. Do you think this movie is more violent than the original Hunger Games or about the same? I think more. I got to be honest. I winced pretty hard at some of the moments. Like, I did not enjoy watching a little Down Syndrome girl get eaten by snakes. No. I was a little (laughs) bit, like, uncomfy with that. Like, boy, really kind of wish they would have left this one out of the movie. That's just me. I think I'm really sensitive to that. Uh, And it it hit in a way that I was like, ugh, like this almost feels like a line. But I don't know. Maybe our listeners don't feel that way. I I just was like, ugh, this is like close to my – comfort level with violence which is crazy i don't You're i've watched way more violent things but what, it, what is it about it that disturbed you so much do you think the hunger games to me always has wrestled with are we the monsters for enjoying watching the hunger sure. games like it's a are meta. we any better than the it's always felt a little bit like the deaths are contrived because they're in an arena and we're almost enjoying like you almost said like the glam of the hunger games yep as Spectator. So it's kind of a trope. Like, who's the gory filmmaker? Oh, uh, Tarantino. Tarantino. Tarantino just has abused that trope to death. You know, he's like, are you, oh, like, look at all these people celebrating violence and inglorious bastards. But are we, the audience, doing the same thing? Switchy switch. Who cares? You're just sitting in a it. comfy theater watching. From my perspective, <laughs> yeah. you care to know. I do care. I think that the original Hunger Games did that. Um, but because there was so much YA teen romance, 
it wasn't taking the violence as seriously. And I think this movie actually, it's, it makes it a little bit starker, the violence. And I think they intentionally show the most gruesome parts of the death and they strip it of the glam. I think that's what this movie's trying to do. Yeah. It's trying to say like, you might have accidentally bought in a little bit to the Hunger Games and this probably point was brought home to me by our friend Hannah Lane Mm. who she's been saying this for years but the ad campaign for the Hunger Games trilogy went really far um too far like let's let's sell a happy meal with Hunger Games toys so that the kids can have them fight to death right which (laughs) is the McDonald's play place table it's it's either making a super meta point about how we as you know a western audience are enjoying the the gore and the bloodbath or it's forgotten its message and it's accidentally fallen into. It's like life mimics I art. I know, I know. But this movie, I feel like, is trying really hard to undo that mistake yeah. by taking away... Splash the cold water in your face. Splash yeah. it in your face. Well, but I think it ne- it needs to be done because yeah. nobody will enjoy watching a sweet little Down Syndrome girl get eaten by snakes. And no one should. Yeah. I think I think you're making such a valid point. So I don't want to get hung up on it. For me, aesthetically, just personally there's something about it that feels a little oversaturated like okay i see what you're doing a little like, on the nose like, maybe yeah like okay got it like the <laughs> violence is bad but like they're almost showing you no no it's horrible right <laughs> and it's like oh <laughs> gosh do you feel like because <laughs> even though this is a we've stripped back the layer a second we still are sitting in a movie theater watching a movie. Yeah. And we are still entertained by the violence. Yes. In my mind, there's only so far you can take that. Like, um, I don't know why I'm thinking of like Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is honest about violence. Uh-huh. But it's morally palatable because, well, with Band of Brothers, we're talking about history. Yeah. We're talking about really something happened. that really happened. So it behooves us to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. Hunger Games has made up a scenario in which... We're going to put a Down Syndrome girl in the arena purposely to watch you die by snakes. And I'm like, felt like they're just shamelessly breaking the fourth wall with that one. Well, but here's the thing. I think here, here's, what, here's what matters then. Yeah. Are humans capable of doing something as bad as Ooh, this fiction? Yes. Because if they're not, then it is gratuitous. Yeah. But if they are, then it's an important point to be made. Yeah. If humans really are capable of doing something as gruesome and grotesque as the Hunger Games, then we need fiction to remind us that that's possible and to spark in us some desire to fight that tendency in us. Totally. We talk about this actually a lot. It's like a meta theme of our podcast is like, how much is too much? Yeah. And sometimes you're like, wow, actually the world needs to be woken up to the severity of what, like Schindler's List, right? Like no one should say that Schindler's List portrays too grim of a story because it needs to. Right. Like that hits us where we live because the point of Schindler's List is we think Schindler's the hero. He's doing so good. And then at the end he breaks down because he did. He realizes I didn't do enough. Yeah. I could have sold my watch and saved five people, right. but I didn't. I kept it. And so I don't even mean to land so heavily on this movie. This That was just an impression. It might not be. Yeah. Our listeners might have a totally different vibe. Totally. And, it, and then it kind of boils down to from an artistic point of view because we are doing art here. Yeah. Um. Like, how much is too much? Can you say the same message without showing the violence? Yeah. A, a case could be made that no. Like, maybe you need to see the brutality in order for it to land. Totally. And that might be a taste. Totally. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Carlin, what are what's like a standout moment or scene that you took away that you really appreciated and liked about this movie? 
I thought what was really interesting was the character of Flickerman. Lucky, Lucky Flickerman. Oh, yeah. Who supposedly is Caesar Flickerman's dad. Oh, really? I that, thought it was the same they're dude. They're played by Stanley, Stanley Tucci, but it's a different name. Oh, interesting. And I, either way, if it's the same person or a different person, what you see is the evolution of the character of Caesar Flickerman. Yeah. Who, by the time we get to the, the Hunger Games, he's like this polished, likable TV host. He's like the, the um, Tonight Show host that everybody yeah. knows. He's like familiar. He lives in your family room. He's a household yeah. name. And what he does is so deftly gives the tributes raises support and affection from the world to love the tributes. Yeah. Which when you're watching the Hunger Games, you're like, oh, yeah, I want, you know, the more people like them, the better chance they have of surviving. But in this movie, this movie is about that evolution. So we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah. Like, should you, why do we love the tributes? Do you think, because he does some, what, I mean, we're meant to like cringe a little bit at how he does it in this movie. Like old Flickerman. Is like he doesn't have it down. He's like a corny weatherman who like yeah. – it's like he's not sympathetic to the character. Like they haven't invented that part yet. We're right. like we want the audience to like these. Which it's, <laughs> it, what it's telling us is that is an invention. Yes. Yeah. Caesar Flickerman of the Hunger Games trilogy is an invention of the capital to, to feed the machine. They the innovated. But this is before that innovation and what we see is he's calloused. Yeah. He's flippant. He's like um, like that scene when he's like that was – Children, that was diabolical and horrendous and disgusting. And next time, would you just vomit in the bathroom instead of on the floor? Plays <laughs> yeah. it for a laugh. Yeah, right. Gross. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> so I think his character, especially played off later Caesar, demonstrates totally. this movie to me. What do you think? What's, a, what's something that hits home for you in this movie? Every single time Peter Dinklage got on camera. <laughs> he just like classes up any, anything he's in. Like he hits those notes yeah. perfectly. Every line he delivers... There's so much context going on behind his eyes. Yeah. I was a little confused. Why does he hate um, Coriolanus? Yeah. What's his deal? The dean came up with the idea for the Hunger Games while he was drunk as a joke. Yeah. But it sickens him that it was actually... And now it's spun out of his control and he can't... Totally. He can't he can't put it back in a bottle. But Carlin, we're talking about the themes. Oh, no. What? I think let's switch to our next let's go to our next <laughs> let's not segment. Talk about the themes before, before we're we talking, about the, talking themes. about the themes. <laughs> incredibly well done yeah. of building. It felt like I was reading a book, yes. like the pacing yeah. of it. What I love about this so much is it does humanize snow, mm. but in so much as someone's actions, their choices to be evil matter so much more when you know their choices. Mm. He's not an institution. He was mm. never forced to do anything. Right. He had choices along the way yeah. at every single moment. Sympathize because, you know, Absolutely. he and suffered. You, you want him to do the right thing because he can mm-hmm. and he doesn't. Our classic question is, what are the filmmakers trying to say, right? Yeah. I think in recent episodes, though, we've gotten a better question, which is, what's the character arc of the main characters? And that'll guide you. Like, if you're just, like, trying to, like, extract the filmmaker's message, break that down into a smaller step and ask, what are the characters? What are they they dealing with? So, I thought, do you want to start with Coriolanus and his 
character arc. Yes. Like, what's his deal? Yeah, sh- tell us the tension of what he's dealing with. Great. So we, the first we see of him, he's a little kid running around the streets during the dark days before yeah. the Hunger Games are instituted. And he witnesses um, some dude trying to harvest meat off of a body in the street. And, and he asks his sister, why is that man doing that? And she says, he's hungry. That's the opening scene. So we see Coriolanus has seen um, war and he's seen the ugly side of human nature. Mm, yeah. He's seen people do unspeakable things. That comes back later. But then I think we start out with him um, being impoverished, but trying yeah. to fit in in this prep school kind of yeah. environment. Right. He's hiding his family's true state of affairs. We're rooting for him. He's such an underdog yeah, at that point. Yeah, he's an underdog. He's friends with that one guy who uh, is from the district. Sejanus. Coriolanus doesn't want anybody to know that they're friends. He's kind of downplaying that at the beginning. Yeah. You know, that scene. Yeah. Masterful scene, by the way, with all this dialogue and the looks trading back and forth. You immediately know what each of those classmates, what their motivation is. Yeah. And we hate all of them hate except them. for his friend and Coriolanus. Yeah. Those are the only two we like. Yeah, so... Among the prep school uh, red dress crowd. Red dress, red kilt crowd. (laughs) uh, It's a kilt. It's a kilt! Then what what would you say is the next evolution of his character? Then he develops even more humanity because the thing I thought of first and foremost was Coriolanus is in the arena. Yeah. He's fighting for survival. Even though he's not in the arena, he's in the capital fighting for his life. Right. And, And we're really pulling for him in that. And it develops this empathy bond when they announce that, okay, well, you guys are now the mentors. This is the only way you're getting the Plinth Scholarship, right? And so you're going to mentor the tributes. So when he meets Lucy Gray, they have this super humanizing bond. And now I think, Carlin, at this point, we're introduced to the central question of Coriolanus, which I think is the first big theme this movie deals with. which is Tell us! Tell us! The tension between survival and love. Uh-huh. The tension between survival and love because yeah. again and again, people are asking him, are you in it really for the well-being of this girl who's just a tribute or are you right. just in it for the money, right? right? And I don't think he knows. I think he's falling for her. I think he's ready to do everything to try to protect her. So there's right. the love element that – and they have this – like trauma bond because their moms both smelled like roses or something. Yeah, right. And they both, but they both had hard childhoods. Right. Right. And they're both trying to like survive. So there's there's a love element that comes through. And I think Coriolanus is really, he's mixed up in his mind. He's not sure. Do I love this girl or am I just doing it for the, the money for my family, the survival element? And conveniently for him, both of those goals align. Yes. In the first part. He keeps her alive. She's alive. He keeps her alive. He could win the plinth prize. Totally. So it's not until there becomes a conflict of interest when we will find out what his real motivation is. But yes. for now, it's it's comfortable enough for him to do both. Yes. And two other points on that. That same tension is happening with his friend Sejanus. Yes. It's politically convenient for him to make sure his friend doesn't die in the arena uh, yeah. Making a statement against the Hunger Games. Okay, so Sejanus's quick story arc is yeah. he his family's from the districts, right? District two or something, and then they get fabulously wealthy off of the war, right? And now he's supposed to just assimilate and be a capital guy, but his heart is in the districts. He sees them as human beings, where the yeah. capital sees them as just cattle, basically. Yeah. And so when they announce the tributes, 
the tribute he's assigned is from his district. It's actually someone he it's went to friend. school with. It's his friend, right. And his dad bought this tribute for him uh, to drive home to him that you can never go back to the districts. We're, some, we're now capital. Wow. But Sejanus will, has never accepted that. And he's, I mean, it's devastating. And so it makes him feel so gross to be yeah. in this. He's wearing this red uniform and he's in the capital and he's well fed and he's got all this money and, and influence. Yeah. But he feels sick about Despicable. it. He says, yeah, I'm so innocent. I'm choking on it. Right. You love him for this, but he's the only one willing to stand up and say, this is wrong. You yes. can't treat people this way. And he has this plan to go to the arena and die by his friend. Like let the tributes kill him and yep. let it be televised. Yeah. And obviously the Capitol doesn't want that to happen. Right. And at first you're like, is Coriolanus, like, is he actually on the side of the tributes? Like, uh, cause he tells Sejanus, use your dad's money to do something real. The reason why it's in his interest is I'm your friend. And if you do this, I'm screwed. So, Conveniently, again, right. both Coriolanus's motivations. Right. He can save his friend. He can protect his. And what's his name whispered in his ear? If you can get him out of the arena, then I might I might whisper your name to the, yes. to the, to the dean. Right. And it works. So the first half of Coriolanus's story is doing all this stuff where survival and love are seemingly not at odds. They're parallel, mm -hmm. right? And we build empathy for him. Mm -hmm. We're rooting for him. I don't think he knows the difference mm -mm. truly, but he's wrestling with it. Mm -hmm. And then it all kind of unravels maybe in the second part of the story. Yeah, so he wins. He he gets her out. She survives. She kind of has feelings for him. Yes. But then he gets banished for cheating. And that paints him even more of a martyr. I think this is a core motivation for just Coriolanus Snow that carries through the Hunger Games. Mm. He feels like he's Pan Am's best and brightest, but he keeps getting left behind or no one will recognize his value. He's got all these bright ideas. Yeah. He should be in the driver's seat. He should have more control and people recognize like he's talented. He's yeah. bright. He's adorable. He's whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, which is beautiful. <laughs> if I don't say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he's always getting victimized. He's, you know, which paints in his mind a little bit of a victim card. Right. Now, if I could just pause here. Yeah. At the tipping point at, in the movie, we don't know what's going to happen. And just remind everybody of the original Hunger Games. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to me, Carlin, I don't know if you agree with this, but like survival versus love is the motif of PETA and Katniss okay, in the yeah. original Hunger Games. Yeah. Because remember, PETA confesses his love for Katniss on live TV. Right. And the question is, is that real or is that just a strategy, bruh? Like, you just right. saying this to, like, gain more gifts and more audience sympathy? Well, for PETA, it is real. Right. But for Katniss... She's, like, confused and conflicted, right? And she's got the love triangle with Gail and PETA, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then it's not just love for PETA. It's just love of humanity. Because remember the other tribute, she bonds with that girl, Rue. Yeah. Rue gets killed. She does the, like, Mockingbird salute. That's, like, right. her catching, like, her big moment as I'm now the Mockingbird. But yeah. just, like... It's because she's showing humanity for the tributes. She's kicking back against the survival game, dystopian game they've set up and saying, I'm going to show the humanity of these people in the arena. Yes, right? yes, yes. So she, so Katniss chooses love, uh -huh. right? And just talking about the first book here. But I think they carry that theme again and again and again and again. Everything from like the healers rushing in and then remember the rebels bomb the healers to show. Yep, yep. It's all about the show, right? Right. So there's, there's, you can gain power or you can do it for genuine love for your fellow person. 
Yes. Like a place of integrity. And integrity actually carries the day in the long run, but you can you can cash in for some short-term survival. Yes. And the villains always do that. Cadness's main thing is that she will not serve anybody else's cause. She's impulsive and she's a bad actor. So the moments when she shines are always raw. Right. It's when, you know, something happens and she's like motivated internally from her own righteous anger yeah. to make a statement. And then all these political people yes, see man. that they can use that as the mockingjay and they're going to try to make her be the symbol, but she will not be controlled. Right. So what they have to do is set up scenarios and keep her in the dark, but they set up a scenario, like they, they ship her off to um, District 12 after it's been bombed, but right. they have the cameras trained on her ready to go right. because they know that they're going to get something from her. Right. But it has to feel real to Katniss. Right. Otherwise, she won't play along. Right. And in the end, she sees through the fakery of it yep. and the power games. Yep. And tell me if this is right. She, she kills the leader of District 13, right? She does. She shoots her with an arrow. Yep. And... Thus saying, it's better to be authentically concerned over things. Like, the show might convince the masses for a little bit, but it's like, it's hollow, it's fake. Yeah. We're going to tear it down. Yes. That's what the Mockingjay does. There's three motivations. Yeah. Help me think this one through. Because okay. this feels like, yeah. um, there's motivation for, like, that raw, honest motivation that Katniss has. To do the right thing. For justice. To almost. protect the innocent. Yeah. yeah. Then there's the motivation of survival. If, uh, kill or be killed. Right. Eat or be eaten. Right. And that is what The Hunger Games is built on, but that's also what Pan Am is built on. Right. Then there's this third motivation, which is political chess. Almost in the name of preventing rebellion. You know, if we don't keep the districts in check, then there's going to be another bloodbath and nobody wants. That's not good for anybody. Right. Well, I would say the survival motive on an interpersonal level within The Hunger Games and this is the format of every book. You start in the arena yeah. as these individuals deal with that tension. Yep. Survival versus love for your fellow man. Mm-hmm. And then they blow it up to a society-wide level. And then in the second half of every book, we watch society outside the arena deal with that question. Right? And the that's, question and that's, being, yes. the question being, when you put humans, when you pit them against each other, there's one resource, you know, and you yeah. pit them against each other. Human beings will always turn into animals in order to survive. Right. Survival is the is the only true motivator right. of human nature. Right. Right. But is that true? And, and right. And so the second theme that I noticed, uh-huh. and they're they're like linked together, uh-huh. right? Because that's how this happens is, is what is human nature? Yeah. Is it good or is it evil? And we watch our characters uh-huh. grapple through that because it's related to that question of am I gonna love? Or am I going to just survive, right? Right. And integral to that question is, what do you think human beings are? Are we animals? In the case of this movie, it's like, are we snakes? Or are we songbirds? It's very nicely illustrated in the scene from Catching Fire yes. where all the tributes are on stage and they've just, Caesar Flickerman's just interviewed, but these are tributes who have already survived the Hunger Games. Right. And they're all standing on stage and they're all using their best um, tactics to get the games canceled. Huh. Because they're like, this is so unfair. We won the Hunger Games. Now we're being thrown back into the arena. And on stage, they all hold hands. The citizens of Pandem who love the tributes are like, wait a minute. We don't know if we want our favorite tributes to die. To go kill each other. And then Hamish says, or Plutarch says, uh, you wait. They're holding hands now. But as soon as that bell rings, it'll be a bloodbath. And 
That's just another. And is it? I can't remember. It is. It is, except there's a whole other game going, yeah, um, which okay, is right. get Katniss out of the arena. Just go watch Catching Fire. Yeah, okay, so yeah, good. fair. Um, no, but that's the motif, right? Like, what is human nature? Yeah. And it seems like to me, in this movie and all the others, the bad guys consistently say people are animals. Yeah. We need the Hunger Games to keep them in check. You yeah. know, just raw animal fear, classic yeah. villain motivation, right? Yeah. And the good guys are always like, no. Like, Peta and Katniss at the end, rather than kill yeah. each other for survival, to say, well, we're going to eat these berries. And just die right. a Romeo and Juliet style. We're calling your bluff. Yeah. We won't kill each other. Right. What if we just don't? What if we just don't? What if we do nothing? Right. We don't play your game. Right. But as uh, Flickerman, old Flickerman says, see what happens when you do stuff? <laughs> it's so stupid, First you think that's funny. what a throwaway line for yeah. an embarrassing TV host. Yeah. But it keeps coming back. And, and it's true. Like anytime you do stuff, your ratings go up. Yeah. Even Katniss and Peeta, who in the moment, their, their real motivation is, we're not going to kill each other. No, we love each other. We'll, we'll, we'll threaten a suicide. We'll call your bluff. So they choose not to do stuff. <laughs> right. Dying being the ultimate not doing stuff. <laughs> right. The truly noble tributes end up usually refusing to do stuff. Like the yeah. one dude, I can't remember his name, but he stacks all the bodies, pulls the flag down. <gasps> he yeah. did that and he covers them. And then he just right. sits there. Right. And we're meant to look at that and be like, well done. Noble. Like I'm just not, I'm just not playing this game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On human nature, uh-huh. I think Lucy Gray in this one is meant to give us those little nuggets of like, you know, and she just says it in her folksy way. Yeah. There's some evil in everyone and the, just don't cross that line and embrace the evil, right? Yeah. She says stuff like that, like yeah. consistently again and again and again, right? Uh, always does the right thing and believes the best about people. She has integrity. Right. Coriolanus, just to take it back a second, one of the themes is humans are animals and the capital is trying to show that the districts are animals interesting because they're like even just they're put in a zoo and they're yeah. they're taunted with food and they're treated yes like they're not only are they poor but they're dangerous they'll do anything they'll kill you they started the revolution right. they're the threat right and we are civilized but but then we see a couple moments where even capital people are reduced to animal mm, behavior like what for instance, when Coriolanus has first holds the club in his hand and kills that boy, yeah. he's dead. Well, first he shouts, I don't want to kill you. I don't want to hurt you. Right. But then he does. But then he swings again and again yeah. and again. And yeah. you see this frightening overkill. Yeah. And you think he's tormented like, I just killed a human being. But he doesn't say that. He says, I felt I felt powerful. powerful. And there you're dialing in on his central tension because he's been like kicked starved, mm-hmm. underappreciated. He's in an arena. He's fighting. For, they're all in the arena, right? And I think yeah. they do a good job of showing this. Yeah. It's not to justify what the Capitol's doing. It's just to humanize yep. the character that we're meant to be caring about, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and so, yeah, like killing a, a tribute who you've already killed, like hitting him again, there's a power feeling like I'm done t- being taken advantage of. So how does the, how do the filmmakers show Coriolanus? What's his ultimate answer? To both yeah. of those questions, survival versus love and human nature. His friend. Sejanus. Sejanus sees the humanity in everybody. Right. But that he's a little bit naive about it because several times he trusts the tributes. Like even he puts himself in the arena thinking maybe if I'm like on the side of the yeah, tributes, they, won't hurt, they me. won't hurt me. Right. But we see people in the arena like the girl with the trident. Yeah. She's a villain. Bad trident She'll girl. kill anyone for any 
anything. Totally. Um, and she just stabs them and stabs everybody. <laughs> yeah, she's very stabby. <laughs> she's so stabby. But um, and and so Sejanus, and then he goes to the districts and he's like, "We're gonna have a new life. You'll you'll see. You'll do great. We can make a nice, charming, rural life. We'll work hard. Yes. Well, maybe maybe I'll be a medic and I can help people and make a real difference. Yeah. And then he gets involved in that plot. Right. And he's like, "We're gonna escape. We're gonna help everybody escape." Then he walks in and he's like, "Wait, why are all these weapons here?" And he underestimates that even the Poor people can be, Oof. the you know, the people yeah. in the districts can also be violent. Right. He sees the violence of the capital. But I think for Coriolanus, he's never been illusioned about human nature. Right. Because of that scene at the beginning when he sees Dude chopping that the guy leg. getting chopped up. <laughs> he knows that hunger is the motivation of all human beings. You can stave it off for a while. Yeah. And he, so because he's not illusioned, he's able to make the choices I mean, this is setting up President Snow for the rest of his life. Yes. He, he's like, we both know we're not, I'm not above killing children. I just don't want to be wasteful about it. Right. He will play people against each other. He'll use all their motivations. He'll use their hunger. He'll use hope. Yeah. He'll use glamour. Yeah. He'll use stardom and fame and money and fear in all the right, right amounts in order to control people and subdue them to his end. Right. And that's what makes, in his mind at least, that's what makes him and he, the king. And the tipping point for him is first with his friend Sejanus. And I like that you pointed out that Sejanus is a little naive. Because yeah. I think it's giving the counterpoint to, like, the solution isn't just to believe the best about everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And we can get to that when we break it down in yeah. our worldview, right? But it, I think it's actually a welcome balance. Yes. Sejanus is naive. But... Coriolanus rats him out with the Mockingjay first. And he's trying to do both. You see him trying to do both. I can do both. Because one moment he's recording his buddy with the Mockingjay because it's a smart survivor move. Mm -hmm. And then he sends it off to the capital. Could be a ticket out of there. Then literally the next scene, they're in the warehouse and the uh, poor people just shot each other. And he's like, listen, you're my brother. We're going to make it. You know what I mean? Is he just lying out of his uh, through his teeth because he's already ratted him out at that point that's what i was curious about as i was watching this i'm like he's just in his mind he's such a survivor i think he's using loyalty and friendship yeah so as to survive and so he's he has a dual mind but he still is kind of like i'm i'm doing both which we've all been there like you have two motivations yeah, and you haven't reconciled them out yet because they haven't really been pitted against each other yet. Yeah. So you could see him truly loving his friend because he does. Like, he, remember, he's yeah. going through his box and he sees the picture and of the cries. two of them. And he says, I'm so sorry. He he's, cries about it. So I don't disbelieve him when he says, you're my brother. Yeah. But at this point, he's already sold his soul yeah. for survival. Totally. He's already betrayed his friend. He's Judas. Yeah, and then we watch. So his friend gets hung. But, hey, he could still go with Lucy Gray. Yeah. There's still a hope for them. Just forget about all that stuff. Yeah. Just forget about it. Don't deal with it. Yeah. Just forget it. Be sad. But, okay, just shut the box. Yeah. yeah. Let's go. Yeah. But what we see is actually having already committed himself to this survival mentality. Uh-huh. People are all snakes. They're going to bite you. Right? Yeah. You can be familiar with them and they'll let you live for a little bit. But but everyone's a snake. Every, when our guttural reaction about snakes is they're freaking, they're going to bite me. Like, bite I don't want you. that near me. Yeah. Like, even the ones you quote unquote trust, they will bite you. Yeah. Right? Like They might not be venomous. <laughs> yeah. My brother-in-law had a snake, bit him on the hand, you know, when they were kids. Crazy. I hear that a lot because my wife is like, oh, uh, snakes? Heck no. You know? Like, <laughs> She's also had to deal with like venomous snakes. Right. On our campus. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But anyways, anyways. we digress. 
So he's already committed to this idea that people are going to betray you. So then he's kind of, he tips Lucy great. Like she actually does trust him until he goes, three's enough for me. She's like, who's the third person you've killed? Trust broken. Yeah. It's because he's been lying to her, but then he pushes her towards this like conflict, but interpersonally. Uh Uh-huh. Where she's like, I'm the only last loose end. Right. And then he finds the guns. And he's started like, he's like, why would you say that? Why would you say that, Lucy Gray? So now he's thinking, she's betraying me. She's going to betray me. And she's thinking, he's going to betray me. There's nothing I can say that will convince him that I'm not going to betray him. She probably wouldn't. But what she needs, in order for her to trust him, she needs him to trust her. Yeah. And until this point, it's always been a one-way relationship. Yeah. She needs him, and he rescues her. Right. He gives her food. He sends the water drones to save her life. Yeah. He protects her from the snakes. Yeah. So as long as he's holding the cards and she's dependent on him, like, he'll trust her as far as that goes. But now there comes, for the first time, the moment where she is the only one who knows the secret that he's killed someone. And now when he has to trust her, he has to reckon with what do I believe about human nature, which from day, sorry, I just threw my pen at you. From day one, going back to that gritty scene with the cannibal axe guy, he believes deep in his heart that human beings cannot be trusted. When my hunger comes against your hunger, it's, it's zero sum game. Fittest survives. Yep. That's it. And so one question I had was, did she put the shawl on top of a snake on purpose? Or is that just an accident? Like she just threw it while she ran? What are we meant to? I was a little confused about I that I think part. that's intentionally ambiguous. And I think it's meant to be. She could have just dropped the shawl. Yeah. She's running for her life. Yeah. She's not malicious. She's not trying to hurt him. You don't think so? She's just trying to protect herself. She, she lies to get out and then runs. Yeah. Fair. It's, it's still raining out there. Lucy Gray, it's still raining out there. Well, she's like, I'm not made of sugar. Yeah. Ah! Such good dialogue. And she's just, yeah. She, but she's like, I'm afraid for my life. I have to get out of here. Drops the shawl accidentally on a snake but Coriolanus comes by gets bit by the snake and because he's consumed in this narrative I can't trust anyone and I can't trust Lucy Gray he's like was it poisonous Lucy Gray was that poisonous yeah was that on purpose she's nowhere near he can't he can't know it's kind of left to his interpretation but I think if he trusted her there's a scenario where she did it on accident yes but it's too late for him because he's consumed by his paranoia like any abusive man he has to hold all the power to feel comfortable and the minute he needs her, he's got to give one of his chips, power chips to her. Okay, I'm going to trust you to hold this secret. I'm going to really trust you. The minute that is on the table, he doesn't do it and it destroys him. Yep. Daggum. Yep. Heartbreaking, isn't it? Tragic. So, wow. I had some other miscellaneous questions. Did you have any other questions you want yeah. to just throw out there on, on the themes? I think I think that's a really satisfying, like... That's the that's the main lane this movie's driving in. Yeah. And all the other characters are vamping off it in different ways, which we could talk mm-hmm. about. But mm-hmm. do you have any other one more one more theme that I think is really important, and maybe we've touched on this enough, we could just cinch it up. Yeah. Is what are the Hunger Games for? Ooh, yeah. Um, that's a question that uh, Viola Davis with her crazy eye. <laughs> um, she <laughs> She's was, crazy. She was so unhinged. <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a question she asked him three times. Yeah. Or maybe twice. But at the end, he succinctly says, at first I thought the Hunger Games were to punish the districts for their uprising. Then I thought it's to warn the capital. This is what could happen. Again, we should be afraid of the districts. See how violent they are. Now I realized, and this is the final evolution to the Hunger Games that we already know. It's to remind us that we are the victors. 
and, and this echoes President Snow asks uh, the first game maker with the wicked beard. Seneca Crane. Seneca Crane. He asks him, why is there a victor? Why not just throw a bunch of kids in a ring and have them kill every one of them? Like, why don't we just drop firebombs on the district every once in a while? Why do we need a victor? And it's because, and it, I've found this confusing throughout the rest of the Hunger Games too, because I'm like, shouldn't, don't you, are it, building sympathy for the districts, doesn't that make it, make the Hunger Games seem more like bad? Like how can we be at yeah. peace with this cognitive dissonance? Yeah, right. But it's not true love. You don't really love your victor. You, you like champion them. Right. You, you cry when your favorites die and then you root for the ones that you want to survive. It gets people watching. Yeah. But the whole point. For President Snow is a little hope is a good thing. A lot of hope is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been a little bit like, yeah, is the concept fully believable? I think there's a yes element, and that is like people literally did this with the Coliseum. Yeah. Bread and circuses. Yeah. Right? The difference being your average Roman citizen wasn't wasn't subservient. What they did was they made slaves and war captives fight in the arena so that there's actually always a layer you could fall down towards. Like – yeah. No matter how bad you have it, so you're a, a slave, but you could be a down a level and be a gladiator. And it gives right. the gladiators hope on a like class level mm-hmm. to maybe rise above their station. But it is interesting because gladiator not everyone in the arena is a gladiator. Sometimes you're just like a random dude that was captured. You're <laughs> just a slave, you're meant sure. to be slaughtered. Yeah. The gladiators get this kind of fame Glory. thing going on. Remember that song by Lord called yeah. Gladiator? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's like Fame and glory, gory glory. Gory right? glory? Gory glory. And the Roman citizens had their favorites. Right. And and the even the gladiators have these privileges. Right. Yes, they are a slave, but they're like a privileged slave. Right. That gets to eat well and have luxuries and have, you know, yeah. brothels or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So creating this microcosm of a world where you could rise or descend yeah. keeps people, it keeps the normal people enthralled. Right. But it keeps the everyone underneath oh, the room. A little room. afraid. Yeah, a little afraid. Uh, that's why, like, for example, in Soviet Russia, the gulag was so effective. Ooh. It's like, sure, you have it bad, but you could always be thrown in the gulag. And Stalin right. was a master at making everyone feel like, I'm maybe one bad interaction with Uncle Joe away from going to the gulag. Yeah. It became this central defining element of their culture you could say the same for rome Mm -hmm. the spectacle sort of ate rome's soul and it became Mm -hmm. this decadent decaying blah 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 we could talk about the roman empire not that i think about it all the time you you don't think about the roman empire just think about it like half the time half of the time (laughs) but we digress (laughs) the believable part is that people have done this in history yeah the unbelievable part is that it does seem a little bit like a divide like it's like suzanne collins created this bomb that's definitely going to go off in the capital's face yeah. Like it just seems like so – it does seem like they're setting them up, like they're loading a publicity gun and giving it to their enemies. But they're like, but no, we know what we're doing. Yeah. You right, know, so right. it's like, okay, uh, I don't know. Like the real Coliseum was a little more robust of an institution than it seems like the Hunger Games would be in real life. Sure, sure. But suspend the disbelief for a second. For young adult fiction, she creates a pretty robust and totally. believable totally. political structure. Totally. Yeah. Carlin, here's a question. Yeah. Tell me more about the snakes. Oh. I know we've alluded to them a little yeah, bit. Yeah, snakes and songbirds. Yeah. Are snakes a symbol of human nature? If they trust you, you're okay. If they know your scent, if you're familiar. Oh. If not, you're dead. 
A rainbow of destruction. Uh, Lucy Gray is constantly handling snakes and her dress looks like snakes and she survives mm-hmm. the snakes. So, But I'm a little confused about that, actually. Yeah, I think the snakes and the songbirds are played against each other, obviously, because that's the title of the movie. Right. But I, I, I want to answer your question, but I'm going to answer a different question. Which Please is, do. what are the songbirds? Ooh! Because Lucy Gray... She sings, right? Yeah. And that's like her, that gets her this popularity. Uh-huh. It endears her to the people. It also endears her to the snakes. That's the lore, right? Yeah. She's like, oh, she's saying something about the lore of her song, uh-huh. Scared Away the Snakes or whatever. And then Coriolanus is like, let's use this. And then it's like, oh my gosh, it's the, her song is keeping the snakes away. But is that really what's happening? No. The song... There's something about the song that that symbolizes like the glamour and the um it's show, it's um presentation, yeah. it's it's getting people to care about you. And the myth is that that will protect you from the snakes. Right. But in reality, it doesn't. Nobody survives the Hunger Games. The motif is like so uh saturated throughout this entire movie. The songbirds and the snakes. Like, for example, we like the songbirds. We like the Mockingjay that has a sweet, simple, nature as it should be kind of sound. But we hate the freaking Jabberjays, which echo the last words of dying people and are like creepy as heck. So there's like mutant songbirds that are bad Uh and there are good nature Mockingjays, which are good. Because the Mockingjay becomes the symbol of the revolution. Yeah. Because a Mockingjay takes what the capital intended for spying and, and and it subverts it. Right? No, because the Mockingjay is different than the Jabberjay. Yeah. No, the Jabberjay is a creation of the capital. The Mockingjays are just normal birds right. that mated with Jabberjays. But then they are used to send messages. Rue oh. and Katniss use the Mockingjays. Right. And then people kind of catch on and that becomes the signal. Like Katniss is the Mockingjay. Right. She's the symbol of, of fighting back against the right. capital. So, right. So I'm a little, I'm confused over yeah. that motif and I'm confused over snakes. Cause on one point, like, is Lucy Gray meant to be a mockingbird? And she is a snake person. She right. puts the snake down the dress of her, oh, right. she of her mean girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. friend of me, you know, and Are it's we like, meant to read into that. I, I well, it's like, yeah, she's comfy with snakes. I don't <laughs> think so because the snakes are about to kill her. Or are they just like, you know what? Let's just add a lot of snakes and a lot of mockingbird type things to this movie and just see what happens. Snakes represent the human nature, the hunger, right? The The brutal animal nature of humans. Hungry snakes. And the songbirds represent the showy, Showy, flashy. flashy. Why are you mocking me? You're being a (laughs) mockingjay. I am the mockingjay. You guys, I have to deal with this. Whenever I'm around Casey, he just mocks me. Just let him know how you feel, please. Send him some Instagram. Like and subscribe. No. And for the love of all things, if you have some idea what these motifs are about, please tell us. It feels like it's just out of reach because (laughs) this is what the whole the whole book is. Sorry, the whole movie is about. Um, glamorizing the games in order to keep people in check. Yeah. And the song birds and song in general feels like, let's dress it up. Let's show it up. Yeah. Let's theatricalize it. Spectacle. But the snakes are like the true thing going on beneath the surface is... I'm going to bite you. I'm going to bite you. If I can. Even President Coin. But being the conclusion of the whole series is yeah. President Coin, who like she's like the Mockingjay. Yeah. The revolution. Yeah. But even she is just another echo of the Capitol. Yes. Not very uplifting, is it? But that does feel authentic to what ultimately this whole series is about. So then let's just wrap up this with this question. Okay. This is a tragedy. 
We're meant to see Coriolanus. We empathize with him. Mm -hmm. He, he could have done it, but now he, he's bad. What is the good? What are we meant to do? Yeah. What is the good way? <laughs> well, let's look at some of the characters. There are a few characters that are good. Choose the good way. Yeah. Like who? Prim. Rue. Yes. Mags. Tigress. Tigress. She's she's like the heart and soul. Of, okay. Yeah. And I think Lucy Gray. Yeah. And like her covey. Sure. Of people. Of wholesome Who hippies. escape the brutal life, whatever. Yeah. Wholesome. So, and any, anytime there's a child, you know, the little Downs girl. Yeah. Like we watch children being destroyed. Yeah. And, and so, so the, it seems That's to me sad. that if you survive, you know, mostly your innocence will be destroyed or like children will be destroyed or their innocence will be destroyed. And if you survive, then you become like Hamish. Or like um, the Dean guy. Yeah. You get hooked on drugs. And even Katniss, by the end of the Mockingjay, she's she's numbing out the feelings with drugs. So what is the good way? What's the good way that the filmmakers are presenting it? Oh, and Is there one? PETA. PETA's also good. Right, but he gets all depressed as heck. No, he gets brainwashed. Right. And they have to restore his brain. But the redemption is Katniss, by loving him and looking out for him, reminds him of what's true. And what's true is they do care about each other. Like there is some goodness in people. But unless I'm remembering it. For Mr. Mr. Frodo. Mr. Frodo, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> this is not. Because if I'm remembering it correctly, at the very end, it's pretty muted happiness. Like the moral is kind of like, Katniss is so screwed up at this point. She's been through so much well, crap. She just hates everything. You know, she it's gets, like, yeah. I mean, I think Suzanne just, Collins is not pulling punches about what trauma does to people and what evil does to people and if you survive it you might be a shell of what you once were but she and Peter have a baby and the last line of the book and I always tear up when I think about it is she's talking about the games that yeah. Peta and her children play and sometimes they fall down and get hurt but there are worse games to play it's hopeful because there's a future in which her children can live in peace and they don't have to know the horrors of the world the tension I'm taking away from this, Carlin, is that this movie is meant to warn you against human nature, that mm -hmm. it will, what you do with human nature. Because again, they're like, you got to believe the best about some people. You got to mm -hmm. choose trust every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Katniss and Peta do do that mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when all is said and done. Sacrificial love. Yeah, yeah. it's there. But it's really overshadowed by how many people choose violence and, yeah. and survival and so while they're trying to say the good path of human nature is believe the best, trust and hope, what they I think they end up saying is, but by far and away, the bigger choice that most people end up making is violence and death. So they're almost, almost subverting their own message. Hmm. Like they want to say, no, you can choose to trust people. But again and again and again and again, we, we show people not doing that. We show them yes. choosing yeah. evil. And so the Hunger Games kind of functions as like a very tragic warning. About the evils of human nature. Yeah. yeah. There's one more thing I want to ask though. And I don't know if this is a theme or if this should what go to it? our third what point. What is it? And that is the song that keeps coming back. Nothing you can take away was ever worth keeping. The song that Lucy Gray sings yeah. again and again. Again and again. And I kind of thought of two interpretations of that. Hit me with them. One is kind of sad. Like, they're going to take everything from her. Even her life wasn't worth keeping. Oof. Brutal. 
sad. Like, okay, well. Her life sucks anyway, and now you're dead. Yeah. That's okay, cool. but then there's That's another cool. thing. If you strip down someone of their food, their job, their resources, their livelihood, their family, you put them in an arena and give them nothing. What's left? And that means that whatever's left, you can't, can't be taken away. Right. Well, Viktor Frankl talks about this at the end of the day. And another hero of mine, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In fact, I know the Solzhenitsyn line, so I'm going to say that. And it's already been on this podcast three or four times. The more The more the better. If you haven't read Gulag Archipelago, well, buckle up. You but, talking to me? <laughs> no, I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking to our I listener. haven't read it. Buckle up, but it's good. <laughs> at one point, he says, bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, laying on the rotting prison straw... I learned that the purpose of human life is not prosperity, as we are taught, but the maturation of the human soul. Whoa. So the point being, he went to the worst prison in the world, the Gulag, literal mm-hmm. Siberia. And he, sh- he was shown actually how much goodness there is still in life. Mm. And it's spiritual goods that you hold on to, spiritual and relational goods. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm inclined to think that they want Lucy Gray to represent the second take. She's got a yep. wholesomeness and a goodness in her mm-hmm. that no Hunger Games, no abusive Eminem-looking, gun-wielding, bad <laughs> Coriolanus Snow can take away from her. Mm-hmm. Right? In a red kilt. Here's the thing, though, Carlin, and this is just it's – a, it's a gripe, but can you gripe? We're not making these movies. No. She was so wholesome and good the whole time. In my mind, she didn't have much of a character arc. And I wish if she, if we had been able to see her grappling with this question a little bit yeah. and then show her, instead of just like running away, did she get shot, did she not? I want to see her actual answer to this mm-hmm. as she makes her getaway. That might have given me a little more hope in the face of Coriolanus being sure. bad. But we're not given that. She's not, I mean, she's really not the main character. No. It's fully she's, she's about a foil. Coriolanus. She's a foil for Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. But I think there is an uplifting note that they have, but they just never really like, they don't do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's depressing. This is a depressing franchise. It leaves on a pretty low note. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? Pretty bleak, isn't it? But you know what's not bleak? Jesus. Well, yeah. <laughs> Please let us talk about Let's the talk about our point. Christian worldview. For the love of all things pure and good. You know, Christianity is not naive about the potential of human beings for evil. Hmm. In fact, if you read the Bible and you're thinking, Do it. Here's, a, here's a hall of fame for all the people that God wants to show us have done it right, <laughs> you are going to be continually frustrated, surprised, aghast, taken devastated. aback, devastated. Oh my gosh. The heroes of scripture screw up in horrible ways, even the best ones. And like every single character, there's yep. not one that doesn't screw up. No. Except for the son of God who comes back to redeem humanity Mm. and show us a better way. Hmm. So, right, there's a balance. And I appreciate the Hunger Games for taking a pretty honest look at human nature. Mm -hmm. Many movies don't do that. I think Christianity shows us the truth and the balance. Because it it shows us the the evil that God has to redeem us from. Because all human beings are corrupt. We all have that snake inside us Mm. that's going to bite before we get bitten. Mm -hmm. Jesus alone dies for his enemies. Mm -hmm. And he resolves both of those questions. He's like, human nature is so evil, Mm -hmm. but it's worth redeeming. I'm going to give my life because people Mm. are worth fighting for. Yeah. Warts and all. And he shows the ultimate surrender of power for the good of others. 
Ooh, Jesus, whoa, ag- yeah. Again and again, people are like, Jesus, you fool. Like when he's at his trial. Right. And Pontius Pilate's like, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And Jesus is like, you have no power except what's given from you. Right. From above. He I says could, that in chains. Yeah, he's like, I could call 10 legions of angels right now. Mm-hmm. And we know from the Old Testament that one angel, one warrior angel, killed an army of like 60,000 Assyrian warriors. Right? So it's like, Jesus has power. But what he's showing us is that he, he says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. Hmm. So he's showing us the exact tension this film sets up and answers in its best moments. Choose love. Choose goodness over yeah. survival. Jesus literally uh, gave us the best example of that motif by literally choosing goodness over survival for the for the love of humanity he did that and then what he did was inspire christians to do the same now again we're not naive about the ways christians have royally screwed this up yeah but again and again through history you've seen when christians do follow his examples Mm -hmm. christian just means little christ right Mm -hmm. and the thing the christian i think of when i see stories about arenas Right is Telemachus, hmm. who was a Christian monk in the I think the fourth century uh, or the fifth century, the early four hundreds A.D. Gladiatorial games were still going on. Mm-hmm. Christianity was gaining steam within mm-hmm. the empire, but they're still putting people in the arena and killing them. Mm-hmm. And Telemachus uh, was a monk who, according to legend, ran into the middle of the gladiatorial arena as he's watching these image bearers kill each other, and he yells one line. He said, "For the love of God." stop. And a gladiator thought it might please the crowd to stab this monk who ran into the middle of the arena to try to stop it. So he goes over and he spears Telemachus in the guts. And instead of cheering the crowd, according to the legend, the crowd just went silent. Hmm. And one by one, they stood up and they walked out of the arena. And that was the last gladiatorial game ever fought. What? In the Colosseum. Is that real? Now, there's some, I mean, obviously, there's some dispute over yeah. exactly that, that specific story. Yeah. There's evidence Telemachus was real. There's some evidence that this is what happened. Mm-hmm. What did happen was that Christianity killed the gladiatorial games, right? They, they fizzled out. Whether or not it was that one incredible story, incredible moment, right. I don't think we know. But what we do know is that it was Christianity that killed this pagan tradition of making people fight to the death in the arena. Yeah, how? Christians just said enough. Mm-hmm. They just stopped supporting it, right? And Telemachus is a great example. Right. And as Christians rose to prominence in the empire, they petitioned the emperors, stop, stop this. Yeah. And when you started to have Christian emperors, they were like, okay, right? Doesn't mean they were great dudes. Right. But again, but- you see the impact of Jesus' sacrifice. Yeah. He chose love over survival, right? And, and so he broke the zero-sum game. And Telemachus, with his Christ-like sacrifice, did the same thing. He broke the zero-sum game of the arena, which is right. which is what we see Peta and Katniss doing right. and what we see the heroes doing. Yes. They choose to give up their lives rather than kill someone, right? Yeah, and how they're able to do that and what makes this real is that human beings do have inherent value. It's not contingent on their ability to fight or their ability to sing or their ability to do anything whatsoever, which is why we can say that a little girl with Down syndrome is just as valuable yes. and just as worth protecting yes. as, you know, some stud of a guy in his in the peak of his right. physical condition. 
Which, by the way, Carlin, and I cannot emphasize this enough, Christian societies are the only societies that have seen the worth of mentally handicapped people Hmm. in that same way. Mm -hmm. And it's because of, and I should say Judeo-Christian because the Jewish people do it too, but it's, it's because of our belief in the image of God in each person. Yeah. Take that away. I mean, ancient societies would have been like, they, let's say they watch the Hunger Games. They, the filmmakers have calculated that the person we care about and want to protect the most is this sweet eight-year-old girl with Downs. Yeah. And that's meant to be calculated, the most gut-wrenching moment. Mm-hmm. You show that to a Roman or a Greek or a Persian or an Aztec or a, a Viking. Why? Like, who cares? Like, they laugh at that. Like... Great. I mean, that's maybe it's not entertaining, but like, why are we supposed to care about this? This is someone with no value. Christian societies. Uh huh. Not Western Christian, just Christian. Just Christian. Because Christianity weirdly crosses over every cultural. Totally. It once it leaves the being a small Jewish sect, it becomes an African religion. Oh, it's, it's an a, African religion first. It's an Asian religion. It's a. It's not bound up in an ethnicity right. anymore. And we universal. Get, we get confused about that. There are issues of colonization and stuff where yeah. Christianity gets corrupted and used as a nationalist tool, but yeah. it can never actually be that again because Jesus put it on a uh, plane above, right? Yeah. When he said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest." What he's saying is. The spiritual riches of God are for everyone, no yes. matter your nationality. And they can be accessed yeah. because I'm not here for a political agenda. But the point is, Jesus showed love over survival. Mm-hmm. But I think, Carlin, the missing piece, and we're always going to say this, but mm-hmm. only because I think it's true. <laughs> only because <laughs> I actually believe it. Which is why you say anything. <laughs> right. Hopefully. The missing piece for most people in reconciling human nature, the evil of it with the good, is God. Because God values human beings, Mm. we should value human beings. Mm. We are not just our survival utility. Mm. You think about, take God out of the picture. Why do human beings have infinite value? If there's no God, our value is contingent on our utility. Yeah. So if, for instance, you don't have God, but you see that humans are polluting the earth or destroying or creating global warming or whatever, then humans are a leech on a beautiful world. Right. They shouldn't be protected. Any, any dead, like the only good human is dead human. (laughs) Dead human. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Or, I mean, there's no value. There's no higher value at all. So who says we should protect the earth? I might, (laughs) I might feel that way. Right. But I'm just, heck, I'm just one of the creatures that evolved here. I'm the dominant apex predator. Right. And it's like, I'm not denying that people do have strong moral codes, even if they don't believe in God. The Mm -hmm. question we got to ask is on what basis, where's the logical chain for why you should hold to protecting innocent life or stopping the earth from being polluted or putting an end to gladiatorial games. We need a better why than just we evolved that way to care. Right. Uh, But also, yeah, like why should we, how do we reconcile the evil of human nature with the good? Well, We're made in the image of God. And so we all have this innate knowledge that there is goodness in the world and it's worth protecting. It's worth protecting innocence. You should trust Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. There's not a naivete like, oh, like just trust people because they've never done anything bad. It's like, no, it's like I actually should offer you the benefit of a doubt if I don't know otherwise. It's the right thing to do. And why? Because God looks at you and doesn't just see scum that needs wiping away. He yeah. sees someone he made. Yeah. You could be my worst enemy and I still should treat you with dignity because God treats you with dignity. You know something 
Suzanne Collins is really resting a lot on our innate compassion and belief that human life has dignity. Right. And so the Hunger Games is like, she's swinging a punch. She's not pulling it at (laughs) all. Right. And she's counting on the fact that you care about innocence and humanity. Yeah. That you have that so deeply like ingrained into your psyche yeah. That you will still believe in the good of humanity, yes. even in the face of all this corruption. That's why she's, you're so right. She's swinging so hard at this belief that people are always going to do the right thing, right? Yeah. And she's counting on us to wrestle with that seriously because she, the cultural assumptions of her audience, this is just the way it shook out, yeah. are Christian. Yeah. 60% of us are Christians. And if you're not, you live in a more or less, like Tom Holland's a historian who's not a Christian, but yeah. he's like, if you're an atheist in America, you're a Christian atheist. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. You're you're like you might think you're an atheist, but you're really living out the Judeo-Christian value and an inherent belief that yeah. God. So I'd like to know if if you are an atheist, which some of my dearest friends are. Totally. Like what is your best and this is I'm asking sincerely because I I in my imagination I can't fathom. But what gives you the right to say that humans are worth protecting. Like, why do you believe that so strongly if you don't believe that they're created by God? Right. I really would like to know. I don't, th- I can't think of a good argument. I'm sure someone might have something to say, but message us. We'd like to yeah. hear it from you. A lot of people I've talked to are like, you know, I don't know. I just believe it. I just accept it as a brute fact. And I'm like, I mean, I'm so with you. I'm glad you do. <laughs> I'm glad you do. But uh, don't turn off your brain there. Why right. not ask the next question and ask why? Can I ask you the next question? Sure. Just turn the tables on you. Wiki what? You've taken it a step further. Human beings have value because they're created by God. Because they're created in the image but of God. But why that? Right. Well, we're going to start with a priori assumptions. Mm-hmm. To me, God is the one that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. I believe nothing uh, begins to exist without a cause. Mm-hmm. So like Aristotle called it the unmoved mover. Mm-hmm. So like physical... A first cause. It's not that, yeah, it's, we need a cause that's bigger than just matter. Because more than just matter exists? Well, well, first, because we know that matter began to exist with the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Everything began to exist at one point. Right. So we need something that is eternal to be the cause of that. Okay. So I've heard people like Stephen Hawking say, like, because the laws of time and chance and physics exist, therefore the universe can exist. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'd want to ask, like, what causal power do the quote-unquote laws of math and physics actually have? You know, right. two plus two is an equation I have in my head. How does that create stuff? It doesn't. Right. It's not causally powerful. It's And you could say it's a construct meant for us to make sense of ways the world is, right? Right. But the second thing I'd say is if you're going to say that, if you're going to say the laws of math and physics are eternal, why not just take it a step further and just say – they're an attribute of the eternal being right. who is the cause of everything. So why is he personal as opposed to just a force? Because we are persons and we recognize personhood. Personhood is the central reality. We all say this on our deathbeds. Mm-hmm. No one's like, I wish I had more stuff. Everyone's like, I'm so grateful for my family. Mm. I love the people in my life. They yeah. are the, they're the good. Even, and it sounds a little hokey, I think, when it's, but like um, the line in Interstellar, when she's like, for some reason, I feel drawn to 
her her boyfriend's like on the other end of the galaxy yeah. and she's like I, <laughs> yeah. for reasons i can't explain i feel me- like metaphysically drawn to go to this specific point like i don't i can't yeah. say that that's not real yeah because i feel it and in my experience and if this isn't you that's totally fine but in my experience so many stone cold materialists that i talk to end up punting to uh, feelings that they can't always explain as the core most important things of their life yes so they're your that world love surpasses yes. death like love continues after death yeah we believe that the question is does materialism give us a good reason to believe that i think the answer is absolutely not right but it just says it's chemicals in your brain you yeah. only love that person because she reminds you of your mother who you, yeah. you know weaned you or whatever yeah and i've talked to people who are willing to be logically consistent on that which i respect right but they're I, the kind of people that will put children in the hunger games <laughs> no that's not what i'm saying at all that's so not what i'm saying but uh some things are destinies for society, but not individuals. So for example, you could be a solid, good person, better person than I am, atheist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are many such people. <laughs> you know, I could name right. you a few. Right. But could society itself do as well without some reason to yeah. value the image of God in another person? The intellectually honest atheists I've heard, Sam Harris uh-huh. being one, and Thomas Metzinger, uh-huh. they've actually said, like, you know, we don't believe there's a God, but we need to go slow with ethics because our whole ethical system is based on the idea that people are have intrinsic value because they're made in the image of God. Right. They're willing to be honest about where our source of morality is. So, Well, you said something interesting. You said, uh, you know, there could be people who don't believe in God but are better people than you. Yeah. But what I find in Christianity is, and I think Timothy Keller said this, Christianity doesn't just tell you to repent of your evil deeds. It tells you you need to repent for your good deeds huh. because even your good deeds were done with bad motivations. Oof. And yeah. this ties back to Coriolanus and his yes. motivations, right? Christianity says you might be a pretty decent person. Like, for instance, the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, I've done everything you've said. I've kept the commandments. Yeah. I'm a good Jew. I, you know, I'm, I'm righteous. I'm all this stuff. And by the way, he's even humble enough to ask what else he's missing. Yeah. And he asks Jesus, what more should I do? And Jesus says, Go and sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And what that does is it exposes this young ruler that his motivation, even though he's a pretty good guy, his motivation, like it's working for him. Being good has also benefited him because he's rich and he's liked. Yes. But when it comes down to it, Jesus exposes that motivation. Right. He And he's saying that, by the way, to all of us. We're all the rich young ruler in that parable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's cutting, he's dividing our inner motives of our hearts, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and likewise, this movie actually does a great job. Yeah. We're rooting for Coriolanus, right? right, right. Here's the rich, or not, he's the poor, but underdog character. But yeah. everything he does is actually self-interest. It's just disguised so well. And so... Yeah. So Christianity, Carlin, <laughs> surprise, surprise, we've landed here. <laughs> I think it gives us the, the right balance of human nature. Mm. Someone put it like we're glorious ruins. John Eldridge. John Eldridge. Amazing, right? Like, like uh, and by the way, I was going to say this. I appreciate the Hunger Games because the most brutal dystopian societies of the last 200 years have not been the ones that assume human nature is bad. Okay. They've been the ones who assume human nature is good. Can I give you three? Yeah, give me some examples. Convince me. The French Revolution. Mm -hmm. The motto was 
Liberty, equality. Sorry to anyone who's French. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. It just came out. <laughs> the three values of the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, brotherhood, fraternity. Yeah. What could go wrong? Right. Everything right. went wrong because they didn't set up yeah. checks and balances. They assumed that the virtuous people, and they yeah. were vamping off of thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose cardinal belief was man is born free but is everywhere in chains. Hmm. So the point is humans are good, but society makes us bad. Yeah, the so, rich are just taking and taking and the yeah. poor are just innocent. And this is, Yeah, society has burdened us with these inequalities and justice. So what we need to do is yeah. throw off the shackles of the old world. Just tear it all down, baby. Eat the rich. Yeah, storm the Bastille. Execute the rich people. And then once they're gone... The beautiful human nature, the humanist values will just rise to the top. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> that just isn't what happened. Yeah, blood. <laughs> the Russian Revolution, who uh -huh. were very conscious of the French Revolution mm -hmm. and its class implications. Uh -huh. And they're following Marx. And they really believed if we just tear down the czar, this dead carapace of corruptness, which yeah, it was. and opulence. And right. That. It was bad. But it's like if we just tear it down, they really thought spontaneous democracy would just erupt across all of Russia. Like people, the, pe the virtuous good peasants would just swarm to the poles and create these Soviets, which were like share and share alike. I mean, clearly what happened is the most bloodthirsty, hard-headed Bolshevik group seized power. Yes. And they didn't – and the people who could have stopped it were like – good socialists yeah for lack of a better term they were misguided but they believed in socialism yeah they could have stopped lenin and the bolsheviks but they didn't because they un they thought oh lenin's a good dude he's one of us right so they didn't do anything they didn't they weren't aware of the ways human beings abuse and corrupt power and so literally the bolsheviks were three percent of the russian population yeah so 97 percent stood by and let them do their thing because they believed like Ultimately, they just got sick of the struggle and they didn't yeah. believe that anyone would do anything that bad. And it ushered in a hundred years of bloodshed, red terror, mil like 60 million dead because of, because of misguided ideology about human nature. And as mom says, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The third thing that I'm thinking of is the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq. We did the Ooh, same thing. We, we were like, Saddam, bad. Tear him down and there's this democracy, freedom-loving population that's just ready to break out in spontaneous democracy. Right. And it'll be strong and robust. And that was us assuming, I think from a good place, but something that just wasn't true on the ground in Iraq. And so we, we obliterated Saddam. We took out mm -hmm. anyone who could have uh, filled the power vacuum. Mm -hmm. And we just assumed democratic ideals would take root in that country. And we were wrong. And what we, happened instead? Well, we propped up a, a shell government for 20 years and then withdrew and ISIS stepped in. So, <laughs> Whew, so now, and you can err in the opposite direction. And I think this movie's making a good point about that. Hmm. If you assume everyone's a viper out to get you, sometimes you shoot before you get shot. So we need right. a balance. The point is we need balance. And what, what worldview can give you that balance? Taking 100% seriously... The capability of man to do horrible things, but at the same time, recognizing their inherent value, dignifying it. Yeah. And then how do you coax that value? How do you coax the goodness of humanity out? Like, how do you actually get there? Is I there, is there a way to get there? I love that question. I think it starts with unconditional love. Hmm. And this is where Jesus breaks 
human styles of ethics. Hmm. He's like, if you love the ones who love you, everyone does that, bro. Coriolanus Snow does that. Yeah. I'm telling you, you're children of God. And God sends rain on the just and the unjust. I want you to love even your enemies. Hmm. Now, that's a sophisticated moral teaching because that does not mean let the evil people run roughshod over the innocent people. Right. But what it does is it takes out that personal vindictive motive. Jesus came to like right. divide our hearts straight to the, cut us to the quick and make us examine our hearts and say, do I hate my enemy? If so, I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to hate my enemy. Yeah. I can hate the wrong they do. I can stand for justice. Yeah. Usually in a Christian ethical teaching through, through proper channels of authority, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not just anarchism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not just going to go murder someone who does something bad, right. Right? right? There are orders and institutions that are there for a reason. Right. But like, and, I, and we're allowed to stop injustice, mm-hmm. but I'm not allowed to hate. I'm not allowed to go for vengeance. I'm not allowed to assume the worst. I actually need to give the benefit of a doubt unless I know otherwise. Right. And that comes from a spirit of humility saying, I can't be the judge because I am in need of a judge. Right. And if someone were to examine my life, they would also have just cause to. Sure. So I have to be forgiven of my sin in order to forgive someone else of their sin and give them the benefit of the doubt. When I was God's enemy, when I have backstabbed him and the things he tells me are right and good. And I've, I've done this on purpose. And all of us have. There are mm-hmm. things we know we're wrong to do and we just did them. Mm-hmm. We've betrayed God. We're the snake that bit him. Oh my gosh, the snake imagery. God, I just thought about this. Yeah. We're the snake that bit God's hand, but he still picks us up and is like, yeah. I'm going to give you a chance to come back around, right? He gives us a second and a third and a fourth, mm-hmm. 70 times 70 chances, scripture tells us. That's how many times we need to forgive other people. Mm-hmm. Again, boundaries are sometimes appropriate. If there's abuse or bad things or violence, mm-hmm. you know, but our heart attitude is forgiveness, not vindictiveness. Mm-hmm. And as many times as we're supposed to forgive others, God is stands ready to forgive us. Yep. And gosh, because we've talked so long about this. <laughs> and God is a God of justice. So he's not yes. mamby pamby doormat. No. The, the, the choice he's giving you is a fair one. Repent. Own your crap. Come to me, yeah. treat me like God, because I am. Yeah. I made you. Yeah. And I'll and I'll forgive the things that you've done wrong, that you have yeah. no hope of making right on your own. Yes. Reject me. Choose yourself. Choose survival over power on your own terms. Yeah. And you'll be uh, dealt with justly. God gives justice. Yeah. That's one of the most comforting things yeah. we can ever imagine is that he knows and he watches and nothing will be glossed over at the in the last analysis yeah that should give us comfort carlin this was good i'll shake your hand i'll shake your hand and i'll still splash you with a damp rag when we're doing dishes as siblings should as siblings should (laughs) and i'll get you back in some other way oh i'll get you before you have a chance to get me (laughs) (laughs) seven back i do love the hunger games it's good stuff you're a dark person thanks for listening everyone yep catch you next time on Cinema Storm. May the odds be ever in your favor. It felt a little Romeo Juliet for me. Gone grossly sharp. Like, like he went his freak out. I love the camera angle up. Yeah. And then his just like, I'm out, I'm crazy man now. That, I'm gonna shoot. You're talking about when he's shooting at all the yeah, birds? Yeah. yeah. You realize how effective Snow's aestheticization of the games was yeah. only when you look back and realize how 
brutal and raw everything was and how carefully he polished it so that everyone would be in. Like, oh, Stanley Tucci. And it seems like he really cares. And like, yeah, right. Wow, he, like, actually gives the, the tributes a moment to shine. It's like, yeah, okay, they're right. both introducing kids who are about to fight to the death. So. And probably in their own minds. Like, if you're just a yeah. citizen of the Capitol, you might actually feel like you have some compassion. Yeah. But not enough to And Snow created the a games. space where... Despite the fact that you're rooting for kids to die, you see yourself as compassionate. Dang. Brilliant.